Hello, hello. Hey, hey, there we go. We got some. We got, there we go. Good morning. Um, so I am going to throw some announcements, and I'm going to start off with something that I am always excited about and could talk forever about. And we had this Friday night into Saturday morning our high school lock-in. So it's a sleepover for our high school. Yo, oh, yes. Give me some. Yeah. There we go. Um, and so I'm just going to share a few highlights. There are so many, but I'm going to, I'm going to limit myself and just share a few. Um, to kind of start the night off, we had our students kind of arrive around 5 o'clock. And so we got to play some capture the flag, play some games. Um, and then Amy Thomas came, and she had this, like, amazing arts and craft, like, project where we got to color and decorate um, using oil pastels. Is that right? Yes. I'm not an art person, so I just needed the, the affirmation that I said the right thing. <laughs> and so those turned out to be just super fun. Everybody's totally engaged in that, and it was just such a blessing that you came. Um, I'm going to shout you out. Thank you so much, Amy Thomas, for, for doing that. So. Um, another highlight of the night is um, when we had dinner, there was just this really cool, like we like put four tables together so we can all fit around it. And we were just doing highs and lows. And it was really cool for me because it was like somebody shared their like high and low of the week. And then like the whole table like had a huge discussion around it. And then the next person would go. And then we'd have a whole another discussion around that. And it totally felt like family vibes, which was like, oh, this is so cool. Like this is like the culture that we get to build and like live into. And so it was like one of those moments where you're like, oh yeah, like let's go. Um, and um, at the end of it, it was Emma's birthday. And so we had a cake and we just celebrated her and it was just super lively and fun. Um, and then we also had some of our like small group time and that was just really cool because that family dynamic just continued into that. And we just got to dive a little deeper um, with each other and the connections that we made. And um, during those sessions, like our leadership from our leaders was absolutely amazing. Um, so that was just really cool to be a part of. And then in the morning, I got to say, I'm going to brag a little bit. Joe, thank you so much. But she came through with Chick-fil-A catering. And it was a blessing. Church's chicken right there. So um, it, was, it was cool. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, so we, like, just like dinner, we had a huge group, and we just really enjoyed each other. And um, throughout the whole night, it was just a blessing to be with those kids and be with those leaders because you just got to see all of them really wrap around each other um, and take the relationship to the next level and just be in depth. And so I'm just so thankful for our community and for our kids and our leaders um, cool. So just give those leaders and those kids a round of applause for being here. So. <clears throat> the next thing I have for you is that in two weeks, um, I don't know what day that is, but in two weeks, so not next Sunday, but the Sunday after that, we are going to hold like a um, the table part two. It's called Friendsgiving is the theme. And so what that's going to look like is during church service in two weeks, we'll have food um, and tables all the way around. Um, and so it's going to be a really cool time. The last time that we did it, we had these casseroles and people got together and there was like discussion questions and you just got to kind of like get to know the people that are around you instead of like sitting side by side like you usually do. Like you actually come around a table 
Um, and just like I was saying at the high school group, you kind of create that little bit of a family vibe, you know? Like you get to be around the table and just learn a, a little bit about somebody else, which I just think is super cool. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And the way that you could help um, is, like I said, we're gonna be making some casseroles. So if you're able to do that and follow a recipe, Sometimes I have a hard time doing that. You can ask my sister. I tried to make cornbread pudding. It went crazy bad, um, but she helped me through it. Um, but yeah, so casseroles or um, also like set up, tear down. Um, and the other way you can do is decorate. So there's going to be some like centerpieces. So if you can bring like a Thanksgiving, Friendsgiving themed centerpiece, that would also be a huge way to help. Um, and you can sign up for that um, using your... Uh, Brookview Connect card, you can go online and fill that out um, so then we know to hit you guys up for those casseroles. Yeah. Um, the last thing that I have for you is those Connect cards. And we just love hearing from you. Um, and you can write down whether to help out with Friendsgiving or just tell us about you because we love hearing about you guys. And that's all I have for you. Well, if you remember nothing else today, remember this, church is chicken. <laughs> so, good job, Joe. You guys, many years ago, I was, I, uh, was driving in Muckleteo at sunrise. I must have been 21, 22 years old. This was a while ago. And I came over a hill in Muckleteo, kind of the main big hill, and uh, the sky that morning, this was just at sunrise and kind of in the early summer, the sky was more brilliant than anything I've ever seen in my life. The, the, uh, the air was so clear that day that you could, you could see for miles and miles. So from the hill, I could, I could see the San Juan Islands out in Puget Sound. I could see the Olympic Mountains behind that. And the sky was just like orange and red and purple that was illuminating these billowing puffy clouds. The mountains were glowing white from the snow and from the sun reflecting off of them. And the islands were like a spring meadow and the water was like ice blue. And so I just pulled the car over. I just pulled the car over and stared, awestruck for several minutes. Now, this was like 30 years ago, so I had no cell phone to take a picture, um, I, I just sat and stared and felt something in my soul. I felt this sense that, that God is here and he's good. So I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that where you were, you were something happened and you were sort of transported to a transcendent place. The Celtic tradition has a phrase used to describe this kind of thing and they refer to certain places on earth or that experience as thin places, those rare locales where the distance between heaven and earth just disappears, it collapses. 
This past summer, our, our family went to the gorge to see the, the Lumineers. Here we go, Brooklyn. <laughs> and I've mentioned this before, but it was uh, Brooklyn's Christmas gift, I think, from the year before that. Was it Christmas or birthday? It was birthday. This is one of those nonsensical details that Jen would like. So I'm just channeling, <laughs> just channeling my inner Jen right now. Uh, anyway, so okay, it was her birthday. Uh, and so her gift was the Lumineers, like not until middle of the summer. So she had to wait months and months for this. But the Lumineers are her favorite band. How many Lumineers fans in here? Yes. You are Brooklyn's people. Just that folky rock sound, and then it was at the gorge, so that breathtaking setting, if you've ever been there. So when we got there, the opener was playing, um, and they were, and even the opener was so dang good. Gregory Allen Isakoff, just this amazing folky stuff, like banjo and upright bass and violin and harmonica that were just rocking out. And so at sunset, with the gorge behind the stage as a backdrop, just brilliant sky, and Brooke says, Dad... Dad, heaven is going to be better than this. <laughs> and so for her, it was a thin place experience. And many of you have had this, this kind of feeling. And you've had it in some other context. You know, maybe like you see an incredible piece of architecture. Or maybe it's an exceptionally good meal. Just dang. Right? Or it's laughing around a table with good friends one night. Or snowboarding on perfect snow at Whistler. But there are moments of like higher levels of awareness when suddenly we can sense God's nearness and we, we feel his goodness. What is that? This, the, the Celts called it a thin place, but, but scripture writers call it God's glory. A lot of people think of God's glory as like his fame or, or his celebrity status. As if glory is, you know, like how many Twitter followers Jesus would have. And while I'm sure uh, Jesus would have a lot of Twitter followers, that isn't really what God's glory is, is all about. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. You guys say that with me? Kavod. Nice. It's got a, like, kind of a low. Let's do that one more time. Kavod. Yeah, I like that. So it, it literally means weighty or heavy. And it carries the, with it the idea of significance. So God is weighty, important. We should stand in awe of him. And all through the scriptures, God's glory really is about two things. It's about his presence and his beauty. There's a story in 2 Chronicles in which King Solomon dedicates the temple. So tens of thousands of people had spent years building it crafting it into an architectural masterpiece. So Solomon gives a heartfelt prayer uh, offering the temple to God. And then it says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory, the kavod, of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the kavod of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the kavod of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good, his love endures forever. So kavod here isn't, isn't God's fame, it's his presence, it's his beauty. The reality that, that he was there, not far away, but right there with them. 
And there's this stunning sense as well of how good he is, his beauty. So that day, heaven and earth were, were like wed, if only for a moment. He is good. His love endures forever. It's worship and gratitude for God's presence and his beauty. It's the sensation that I had during a sunrise 30 years ago and, and Brooklyn had at the gorge. It's a sensation that we can have anywhere, really. It was, it was there that day at the temple, but in Psalm 19 it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In other words, God's glory is in every square inch of the universe. God's presence and beauty are everywhere. God's kavod is in the temple and in Orion's belt, and in the Big Dipper, and all over Stephen's Pass, and God's kavod is at church on Sunday when we gather, and it's at lunch wherever we happen to go after church. John Mark Comer says it this way. He says, of course God's glory is thicker in some places than others. There was something categorically different about the cloud in the temple, but kavod is everywhere. You can't limit it or contain it or schedule it or pigeonhole it or brand it or claim it or control it or run from it. All you can do is close your eyes and live blind or open your eyes and end up face down on the floor. The prophet Habakkuk once said that we are heading toward a world where, to quote Habakkuk, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So right now, not everybody knows about God's kavod. Some people are blind and unaware, but in the future, Habakkuk is insisting everybody will know about it. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, okay, so wait. <clears throat> isn't, isn't this like a series about work and like what it means to be human? Like, where the heck are you going with all of this kavod stuff this morning? And I just want to say, I am so glad that you asked. So here's the connection. One all-encompassing command in the New Testament comes from Paul. And he just says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that's the all-encompassing part, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Because many people in our age are, are unable to perceive God's glory. We, as God's people, are to live in such a way that people begin to see God's presence and his beauty. We are to reflect God's glory, whatever we do. Now here Paul talks about whether you eat or drink, do it for God's glory, and there's all kinds of background to why he's talking about that that I won't try to dive into. But right after that, it's that all-encompassing, whatever you do, do it for God's glory. So whatever we do, even the most mundane stuff, can be done for the glory of God. So the question that we've really been wrestling with for several weeks now is this. How do we glorify God with our whole lives, not just like what we would consider the spiritual stuff? In fact, we've seen that Jesus didn't divide the world into those categories. Jesus didn't, didn't uh, like see part of life as spiritual and part of life as unspiritual. And Paul is just reiterating that theme here in Corinthians. So if most of us spend the majority of the day doing various kinds of work, how do we glorify God with the work that we do? Like if you're a missionary or a pastor or a parent or you work for a Christ-centered nonprofit or in a place where you can openly talk about Jesus, this, this may not be all that difficult of a question for you. But what, what if you're a teacher in a public school? 
What if you're an admin at Microsoft? What if you're an engineer at Boeing? What if you're a mechanic at a Honda dealership or, or an insurance broker? How do you glorify God with your life's work? I have a good friend who's an electrician for Seatown Heating and Electrical. So he goes to work every day, right? How does he go to work every day and glorify God? If you're an electrician, how do you glorify God with your work? What do you what do? You do? Do, you, do you carve a, a little cross into every two-by-four behind the drywall? <laughs> your sneaky little claiming this house for Jesus. Do you, does he write Jesus on the name of his screwdriver, you know, on, the, on his screwdriver? Does he put John 316 on his wire cutters? Does everybody that walks by, he just say, bless you, bless you, bless you? Or does he just like do top-notch electrical work and treat people as Jesus would? Like, how do you glorify God if your work isn't overtly Christian? Well, our job is to make the invisible God visible, to mirror and mimic what he is like to the world. So we make the invisible God visible by both what we do and by how we do it. So I want to look at each of these. First, what we do. We, do it, we glorify God by what we do. If what you do makes the world a more, garden, more garden-like in some way, and by the way, an, elect, like an electrician definitely falls into this category. Can we agree? Like, after losing power, for, for my family, 18 hours on Friday and Saturday. I don't know about you, I'm especially thankful for electricity, for things working properly. How many of you lost power this weekend? Okay, most of you. Does anybody still have, not have power? Okay, that's why you're here. It's warm. <laughs> God bless you. Man, you still are out of power. So here's the thing. Of, for, for me, like losing power, it's like super exciting for like an hour. <laughs> right? And then it gets totally old. And so I, after a while, I'm just like, oh, this is driving me crazy. Um, just like, what do you guys miss? Like when the power goes out and, and the novelty of it wears off and the reality of it starts setting in, what, what do you, like, what is something that you, you miss about not having elect- electricity? Hot water. Warm? Working food? <laughs> food? Chargers. Chargers. <laughs> Your cell phone dies. The, the world is over, <laughs> Right? The internet, frozen T- food. what? Frozen food, frozen food? absolutely. Yeah, uh, TV, uh, coffee. I had to drive all the way to Starbucks. <laughs> what? Light. Light, absolutely. Okay, so, so here's my point. Proper uh, electrical unquestionably leads to human flourishing. So does teaching math or reading or repairing cars, or helping people get medical insurance. So does building airplanes, or doing admin. So if God's glory is his presence and beauty, then we glorify God by reshaping the raw materials of this world in such a way that for those that have eyes to see, God's presence and beauty are made visible. Now you think of it this way, like when we see a piece of art, we see behind the art. And we actually get a glimpse of what the artist is like. When we hear a piece of music, we we can actually hear behind the music and get a faint idea of what the composer is like. 
In the same way, when we see creation, we can actually see behind creation and get a picture of what the creator is like. In, in Romans, uh, we read, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Now, theologians call this general revelation. The idea is that everybody everywhere can access at least some revelation of who God is and what he's like just by living in the world. And Paul is, is riffing on the ancient Hebrew poetry here in, in, in Romans. He's, he's riffing on Psalm, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. How does a star declare the glory of God? By being a star. How does, a, how does a tree speak of the glory of God? By being a tree. How does a flower speak with its brilliant colors every spring? How does a cat declare the glory of God? It doesn't. <laughs> Cats are demonic little creatures. <laughs> Sorry. I, ha I have allergies. So, okay. I, I think you guys see, see what I'm saying about creation. Some of you might be sensitive, so forgive me about the cats. I, just so you know, I, I don't like cats generally, but I'm sure that I would love your cat. <laughs> right? Even if it makes my throat and eyes itchy and makes me sneeze nonstop. So, okay, here's what I'm saying. Cre creation, in a million different ways, declares the glory of God. Not everyone is able to see the God behind it all, though. Some people, they will look at a brilliant sunset and only see beauty. No God, no wonder, no mystery, no longing, no hunger or thirst for the transcendent. Other people will look at the beauty of a sunset, and even if they've never heard the name Jesus, they see past the orange and the yellow and the red and the pink in the sky to the beauty behind the beauty. It awakens worship in them. This, this is like a part of God's genius, the way that he made the world. And, and as people made in God's image, then what happens is we can join him in his ongoing work. We can reshape the raw materials of this world in such a way that people have access to the beauty behind the beauty. We can't make a sunset, but we can make a painting or we can take a photo. We can't make a rock but we can make a rock garden, or we can make a granite countertop, or we can make a marble floor. We can't make a world, but we can remake it into a latte, into a building, into an app, or a dress, or a book, or a meal, or a school, or a cure, or a song, or a business, and millions and millions of other things in such a way that for those that have eyes to see, the beauty and presence of the invisible God become not just visible, but become glaring. So whatever your craft, as long as it's garden-like work, as long as it, it actually leads to some level of human flourishing, you can glorify God in it. In fact, the first time that we read filled with the Spirit of God in the Bible, it's in Exodus. And God calls this guy named Basilel, and God fills him with the Holy Spirit. Now, he's, here's the interesting thing. Basilel, he's not a prophet, he's not a priest, and he's not a king. You know what he does? You know what he is? He's a construction guy. The first person we read about in the Bible that is filled with the Spirit of God is a craftsman, a builder. 
He's a construction guy who's really good at what he does. He's so good at his construction that people would consider his construction art. So here's God explaining to Moses that he has chosen this craftsman. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Basilel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. The first person in Scripture that we're told is filled with the Spirit of God is filled with the Spirit of God so that he can have wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and skill to do what? To cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. What I'm saying is that some people's work glorifies God directly, right? Preaching a sermon about God, singing a song about God, or raising your children to love God, and so on. But most people's work glorifies God indirectly. And that's okay. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. My point isn't that we don't try to talk to people at work about Jesus directly. That, that we, you know, that we don't look to, to do that like everywhere, that people are receptive and we're able to. We should be doing that. I'm not saying that that isn't important. It is exceedingly important. I'm saying that we still glorify God in our work even if we can't talk about God overtly. I'm saying the work itself can be done for God's kavod. So we can glorify God in what we do, but also we can glorify God in how we do it. Our work matters. Was that the Holy Spirit? Uh, Our work matters. But the way that we do our work also matters. The work itself matters, but the way that we approach it, the way we do it. So who you are while you're doing your work, it matters. Uh, We are the image of God. So our job is to mirror and mimic God, to help people around us get a picture of who God is and what he's like. And what is God like? Well, God is patient and kind. So we should be patient and kind. God has integrity. So we should have integrity. God is joyful, so we should be joyful, like not grumpy all the time at work. So, so, so much of this comes down to, it just comes down to our attitude. I mean, you think about, think about how horrible some people's attitudes are on the job, right? They complain or gossip or drag their feet to work hard or they cut corners or they mess around when no one's looking. Jesus is calling you and I to be different, to, to actually shine in places of darkness. So how we do our work really matters. Now, some of us don't have much control over what we do. We just take, take whatever job we can get, honestly, right? And then we do whatever our boss tells us to do. Some of you are in a job where you would strongly prefer to do something else. You would strongly prefer to do something that feels like it's beautiful and sustainable and and good for the earth and it stimulates the local economy or something that fights the plight of, of poverty or illiteracy or malaria or something. But those kinds of decisions about the product and what it even looks like are made way above you on the ladder. And so you show up to your job and you do what you're told. And the, and the truth is, 
it's hard for you at times to see the good that it does. And I just want to say, like, if that's you, how do you glorify God at work? Well, you, you glorify God in how you work. So you, you think about the, the culture of the place you do your work. What are, what are the aspects of that culture that aren't kingdom-like? What, what can you do to bring light to that environment? What can, what, you know, your attitude, your approach, how you treat people. Because there are opportunities to glorify God in how you work every day. Now, if you can talk about, uh, if you can talk with the people at work about Jesus, do that. But even, even when you can't, you can still glorify God. So I want you guys to think about something. And this is something, a lot of people don't think about this. But almost everything that we read about Jesus in the New Testament, almost everything, comes in the last three years of his life. So Jesus got baptized by John the baptizer, and that's when it all started, right? And so then there's, uh, that unleashes all of the teaching and all of the miracles, and he, he goes from, he, goes, he becomes Rabbi Jesus. A uh, question, what, what did Jesus do before that? Anybody? He's a carpenter. He's a carpenter. He's a construction guy. A builder. So does that mean that Jesus didn't bring glory to God until he got baptized? I mean, prior to beginning his ministry as Rabbi Jesus, he was a laborer. He, he worked hard six days a week, and then he rested on the Sabbath. And he did the same thing the following week, rinse and repeat year after year after year. And then one day he got baptized and he started preaching and doing miracles. But prior to that, Jesus worked an ordinary job, lived an ordinary life. Here's what I'm saying, and, I, and I, this is kind of crazy to think about. But if Jesus came today, he could very well do what you do. He could be a software engineer or a preschool teacher or a diesel mechanic or a plumber. He could live in your house or apartment, work your job, have your education and skill set, and none of that would keep him from a 24-7 life serving God. In fact, our discipleship to Jesus is about really one simple question. If Jesus were me, if he had my job, my education, made my salary, had my family, lived where I live, how would he live? Like what you do every day, whatever the work is that you do. Whatever you do every day. Whether that's being a, a, a grandma or a mom or selling insurance, you can glorify God in it. Um, Dorothy Sayers, this, she was this spunky British author from a few decades ago, said that the primary way to serve people at work is to do great work. Well, so if you're a pilot, the best way to serve passengers isn't to be hilarious. It's to be a really good pilot. If you're hilarious, that's a bonus. If you're a chef, the best way to serve your customers is to make really good food. If you're a neurosurgeon, the best way to serve patients is to be a really good doctor. And Sayers went on to say, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the first demand, on his religion, that, that the first demand his religion makes upon him is that he should make really good tables. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
Any of you guys like classical music? Do we have some classical music fans? Refined people. I, I, I admire you guys. I try to go there, and it's a struggle. Um, I, there, are, there are times I've had some moments. I, I try to go there because I want to feel sophisticated and educated and <laughs> above the rest of society, but I can't. I, so, so, so what happens with me is like in, in, the, in the right mood with the right song, I feel it sometimes. Um, but for me, like I grew up on ACDC and Nirvana and Pearl Jam, right? So Mozart and Beethoven, they feel a little foreign to my ear. And I guess I, I like them the way that I like food from India. Like the curries and the yogurts are good when I'm in the mood. I just don't really want to study diet. Uh, and so one, uh, one guy on the Mount Rushmore of composers is Johann Sebastian Bach. And the guy was a prodigy. Like over his lifetime, he composed over a thousand songs, and that, those are just the ones we know about. But he always signed the music with two signatures, his own name, of course, and then also the, the initials SDG, which is short for the Latin phrase, soli deo gloria, which means glory to God alone. And when you think about it, most of Bach's music didn't have lyrics, right? It's just like really good music. But millions and millions and millions of people have found that when they sit back and listen to it, it does something to them. I mean, great music does this to us, right? Like the Lumineers, Brooklyn. It awakens, <laughs> it awakens our senses and helps us feel. And Bach's music has done that for millions, even without words. Soli Deo Gloria. Now, I, I'm well aware that most of us, when it comes to our jobs and kind of what we do, we're not Bach. Right? Most of us aren't writing world-class symphonies and concertos. And we're not doing something so great that we're going to have our own Wikipedia page. But we can all bring glory to God with our work. Um, in college, I had, a, I had the coolest, you guys, it was the coolest summer job. Uh, for four like, straight summers, I was a greenskeeper at a golf course, a Lake Padden golf course. Any of you ever played Lake Padden golf course? You need to go to Bellingham. Okay, so, and, and so part of my daily job was to set the pins and change the tees. So I would, I would uh, get to the course at first light and I would get out in front of the first group of golfers and, and every day for every hole I would change the location of it on the green. And you go, they do that every day, they do that every day. Do all the golf, yes they do, golf courses do this. Because the turf gets all worn out around the hole because that's where all the, the traffic is. So you need to move it to a new spot to keep the greens green. And then the strip where the golfers tee off, that gets all chewed up, and so those get moved every single day as well. And so that was my job. You, you take the grass and the dirt from the new hole, and you put it in the old one. And, um, and if you do it right, there's a little tiny ring that somebody could see if they were really looking, but it, but it sits perfectly flush with the rest of the green. And in a week or so, it, that little ring disappears and you can't even tell that it was there. If you do it badly, then, and it sits like lower than the rest of the grass, then it gets longer grass and starts to get the, kind of this dark patch. Or if, it's, if you don't get it all the way down and it's too high, the mower comes along and scalds the thing and it just looks horrible. So for the greens to stay nice, this is like a really important thing. Also, where you put the hole, where you put the cup, uh, makes, it, makes it hard or easy to play the golf course. 
right? So the golf course, if you, if you, put, if you make too many holes, the really difficult spots on the greens, it slows down play, and the golf course will get all backed up with angry golfers. So this is the cool thing. It was my job every day for four straight summers to figure out how this golf course was going to play, how far back the tees were, where the cups were. If I did my job right, the course played really well, and the greens stayed nice all summer. You guys, it was literally garden-like work. Now, when I, when I had chances, I, I would talk to the rest of my crew about Jesus. Um, they would ask me about my life, and, and Jesus was a big part of my life. And so I would talk about that, just include that. When they would ask, what'd you do this weekend? I went to church because that was part of my life. I didn't just like exclude that. And so we, I would talk about with them. I would talk about stuff with them, whatever the stuff was that mattered to me most. There was a lot of baseball talk. I worked from the summers of 95 to 99. You guys, the Mariners were like legit good. <laughs> but I also talked a lot about church. So I talked with them a lot. I treated them with as much respect as I could, like Jesus would as far as I knew. And, and God used that in, in a lot of different ways with those guys. But over those summers, um, you know, and we'd, we'd have uh, deep conversations every once in a while. But here's the thing. Most of my job wasn't even spent with people, right? Most of my morning was spent in utter solitude, driving from tea to tea and green to green by myself, but the work that I was doing made the world better. It made the world more garden-like. It led to human flourishing. And so I took, a, I took a lot of pride in what I did. It was really cool. And I got free golf, which was really, like, at all the golf courses. They're like, you're a greenskeeper? I'm, I was like, royalty. Country club. Oh, man, it was awesome. Okay. So, so different, different jobs make the world more garden-like in different ways. Um, when Cameron was in kindergarten, um, we had a parent-teacher conference in the fall. I don't know if you've ever gone to your child's first parent-teacher conference. It's kind of exciting and stressful all at the same time. It was October, and, um, and, and so we got together. So he'd only been in school for like five weeks, and we sat down with his kindergarten teacher, and she smiled, and she was polite, and then she said, he only knows 20 of his 26 letters. Now, we didn't have our kids go to preschool because we were super busy starting a church and also we were dirt poor. And so I, I was like, whoa, it's like four to five weeks into school and he already knows 20 <laughs> letters? I looked at Jenna, I was like, what a freaking stud. And, and I fist bumped her and I was like, you know, babe, it's probably our genetics. And his teacher was not amused. She was very concerned. So Jen said, well, you know, we haven't worked with him a lot on that. You know, we're thinking that's kind of what kindergarten's for. Um, but just out of curiosity, how's his behavior? How's his character? Does he stay on task? Does he treat you with respect? Is he, is he getting along with other kids? Is he, is he making your classroom a place that you're glad you, you know, where you're teaching? And she's like, oh, yeah. She's like, he's excelling at that stuff. Like, He's a great boy. He is a pleasure to have in class. He's very respectful. He stays on task. He does what I ask happily, and he makes friends easily. The kids really like him. They click with him, but he only knows 20 letters, and I thought you'd want to know because he's behind the rest of the class, so 
you, you could do a lot more work at home to get him caught up. So Jen asked, well, what's the grade level standard? I mean, what should a kid know at this point in kindergarten? Is he behind the standard? Well, no. He's, he's well above the standard, actually, but he's not on par with the rest of my students. So Jen says, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't a few of your students repeating kindergarten? And, and then like the rest of them have all had multiple years of preschool? Like you have an unusually advanced class, yes? Well, yes, that's true. But he's quite behind those students. Yes, but he's well above where he's supposed to be. He's, he's above the standards. Well, yes, he is. But I'm needing to slow the class down. And Jen said, ah, okay, there it is. So Jen got kind of stern. <laughs> she looks really sweet. And then, <laughs> and she said, look, I'm, I'm actually surprised by how well he's doing so quickly. Just so you know, at home, we're, we're really working on character stuff. That's our focus, and I intend to keep that our focus. Now, academics matter, they do matter, and we care about that, so if he's falling behind grade level standards, or if he's not learning stuff, he's not picking this up, then I wanna know, please let me know about that. But right now, our focus is character. And that's when the teacher just scowled and said, well. And it got a little tense at our first parent-teacher conference for Cameron. So Cam finished kindergarten and started first grade. And in first grade, he got Shelly Cyrene, now Shelly Peach, God bless you. Yes, sir. And um, we knew Shelly. Kate had already had Shelly in kindergarten, and then Shelly moved to first grade, and Kate had her in first grade. And so Jen volunteered in the classroom, and they got to be friends. And by this point, Shelly had even started coming to Brookview a little bit. But a few weeks into Cam's first grade year, um, Shelly called Jen and she said, hey, so we, we just got our assessment test back and, and um, just to see where the students are at, like coming into the school year. And she's like, Cam is in trouble. He, he scored lower than any kid I've ever seen on his reading skills. Like the only kids that, that score that low, they don't speak English. So, um, so she said, I went to his kindergarten teacher uh, to find out what was going on and what her experience was. And she told me that she had a conference with you and Jason and that you don't care one bit about his education. <laughs> and since you refused to do the extra work at home, he was basically a lost cause. And there was nothing she could do. And Shelley said, I'm paraphrasing, what the heck are you talking about? I know that family. That's not how they are at all. And even if they were, even if they were, you, you have to keep teaching the kid, right? If the parents aren't supportive and that's what you really believe, that's the, those are the kids you give extra energy to. And Shelly was, was angry. That's the PG version of it. <laughs> but she told Jen, you know, I don't, whatever happened, 
Here's the reality. He's way behind. And so we have serious work ahead of us. And you guys, so Shelly went to work. Like she spent all kinds of extra time. And she dialogued with Jen a ton. And Jen and I worked with Cam at home, mostly Jen. Um, but Shelly was relentless, just relentless in getting him caught up. And by the end of first grade, Cam was an advanced level reader. I'm just saying. <laughs> Cam, I knew you had it in you. So he went from not registering on the test to like advanced level in, in one grade. And some of you know that what, what he does for work, what he's enjoying most in life right now is teaching English. I mean, he teaches English in Haiti and he stinking loves it. But here's, here's what I'll tell you about Shelly. She is a world-class teacher. Her craft is education, and it is developing kids, and she is world-class at it. And there have been hundreds of Camerons along the way, kids that needed a little bit extra in some way. Could have been social, could have been academic. Kids needed that some, they needed something extra, and she would find a way to help them succeed because she is tenacious and exceedingly creative, and she's so freaking good at what she does. Now, she would love to talk to the kids about Jesus. She would love to pray with them, and she would love to tell them how much God loves them. And, and I, know, I know that because she has done that for years at church, in kids' church. This is crazy. Like, she teaches kids all week, and then on Sunday she comes in and talks to all the kids that she can about Jesus on Sundays. But in the public school, here's what I will also tell you. Without being able to directly talk about Jesus to those kids and those parents, Shelly Peach has glorified God hour after hour, day after day, week after week, year after year, simply by being a sensational teacher. The work itself glorifies God. So here's what I'm saying. From greenskeepers to first grade teachers, from electricians to project managers to software engineers, from the work of being mom or dad or grandma or great grandpa, we all have God-given work to do. The work you do matters and how you do it matters. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have created us and we're all so unique and you've given us so many different kinds of opportunities to do different kinds of work that bring you glory. God, I think about our world and how, how desperate it is to have people in it who do garden-like work and who do it in a way that is a reflection of Jesus. I think about how different our world would be if those who follow Jesus saw work as an opportunity to worship and went to work daily with that kind of mindset. I think about the way that that would, that would impact our country and, and the world beyond. God, help us to do that. Help us to, to encounter you, to serve you, and to glorify you with the work that we do and with how we do it. God, would you fill us with your spirit? Amen.